If something is wrong for you or me, it is also wrong for the cop, the soldier, the mayor, the governor, the general, the Fed chairman, or the president. Theft does not become acceptable when they call it taxation, counterfeiting when they call it monetary policy, kidnapping when they call it the draft, mass murder when they call it foreign policy. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. Today we'll be speaking with Scott Horton, the author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. Scott, thank you for your time. Happy to be here. So we have uh, Henry Kissinger quoting an intellectual in India saying that the state is a fragile organization and the statesman does not have the moral right to risk its survival on ethical restraint. We also have John Bolton on uh, Judge Napolitano's show saying, I would lie about the location of D-Day invasion. Quoting Winston Churchill saying, in wartime, truth is so important it should be surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. Scott, uh, do you think that uh, the elites generally lie in war, not because they're evil conspirators, but they have the best of intentions and are only dealing within a very limited range of options? Well, I mean, that's, of course, the frame of those statements, right? It's not we're lying to you to get away with blue bloody murder, but you must trust us when we say that your life is at stake. The very survival of our nation is at stake. And that's not in evidence. They don't ever prove that. And then they say, well, of course, yeah, I have to lie to you all day about the details. But trust me, I'm only trying to protect you. But all you have to do is know the first thing about it to say, well, the Ayatollah doesn't even have a Navy that could get here, you know, or what, whatever it is that they're trying to scare you about. You know, Norm MacDonald had a bit. It was one of his last bits that he did on uh, on the old David Letterman show was about how. And, you know, Norm MacDonald's kind of take it. Geez, I don't know. You know, TV tells me I'm supposed to be afraid of North Korea. But then I'm thinking like, yeah, I'm really not very afraid of them. You know what I mean? I, you keep telling me my survival is at stake, but I, I'm just I'm just not sure I'm feeling that. And, you know, because Norm, as he puts it, is like, hey, I'm just some guy over here. Right. Something like that, that that's his perfect take is not that he's an expert, not that he knows much about it. Just that you're trying to make him afraid. And the feeling is not quite taking root. <laughs> you know, that's essentially the thing, right? And um, and so I, everyone should just have a good Norm McDonald intake about, oh, you have to lie to me all the time, huh? But not ever about why you're lying to me. Only just on the tactics, never the strategy, right? Only on the, the uh, plan of attack, never why we're attacking. And, of course... Look at our era. It's the era of the phony wars. 19 years today of a war that could have been over by the end of October, even presuming that they wouldn't have negotiated. Um, if they just don't, well, fine. By Christmas, by the end of, uh, you know, the Tora Bora battle in December, Bin Laden didn't really get away, they say, until the 17th. So, um, you know, but the, the whole thing could have been over right then. And the idea that you would have to, uh, you know, tear the whole Middle East apart, turn it all upside down, kill at least two million people, um, cause, as, as we've learned from David Vine and the Cost of War Project this week, uh, between 37 and 59 million people to have to flee their homes in internal and external displacement just in America's theaters of war. As we all know, all of that is all based on lies. The biggest lie of all, undergirding all of it, necessity. 
that it had to be this way at all. But they knew they were jerking your chain from the beginning. The night of September 11th, Bush says, well, we're going to war against terrorism. And after that, they define it even more broadly. Terror. They're going to war against your reaction, your presumed reaction against the thing that anyone did. And we're just trying to define it right out of existence. When if they had said, well, we're going to war with Al-Qaeda. Well, oh, okay, that could be over by Christmas. You're talking about a thousand men, including the fighters in Afghanistan and all their friends online, you know, at the time. Here we are on the 19th anniversary, still discussing this terror war. And and um, that's a whole other kind of dishonesty that they weren't. And, and look at the fake analogy there. Oh, yeah, of course. This is like lying about which beach we're landing on at D-Day to protect our soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, the sure does assume a lot in that framing, of course, you know. Excellent points. Uh, n now, you have mentioned the infamous 1998 interview with Zbigniew Brzezinski, former National mm -hmm. Security Advisor, and the French magazine Les Nouvelles, Les Nouvelles Observateurs, I believe mm -hmm. it's pronounced. Uh, what is the significance of that interview? Well, it's uh, there's some really great quotes in there. So um, this is, as you said, it's 1996, the middle of the uh, Clinton era. The Soviet Union is gone. The Taliban is just coming to power in Kabul. And Osama bin Laden and his group have actually just been kicked out of Sudan and have arrived in Afghanistan, um, you know, for their safe haven there. And the interviewer is talking with Zbigniew Brzezinski. Now, Brzezinski was, this is the father of Mika Brzezinski from Morning Joe on MSNBC. If people are familiar with that last name, that's where you've heard it from. That's his daughter, Mika. Um, and he was the national security advisor to uh, Jimmy Carter. And he was essentially a Polish aristocrat and uh, was extremely anti-communist and, you know, very much uh, a cold warrior hawk uh, serving Jimmy Carter's government. And in that he correctly recounts it's not just he's bloviating and whatever you know we can back this up in fact if you go to scotthorton.org fair use you can see these documents that prove it that um and and he brags about that um i forget if he mentions the specific date but the point is the same that on july the 3rd 2000 uh, uh, july the 3rd uh, 1979 jimmy carter signed a finding that's a an official order to the cia a secret order to them that they're to begin financing the Mujahideen resistance against the communist regime in Kabul, the Soviet supported communist regime in Kabul, Afghanistan, in order to try to provoke the Soviets into invading, or at least to make their effort to support these communists at that time more costly. Then, as he brags to the lady in the interview, when the Soviets did invade, he sent a memo to the boss saying, now we will give the Russians their own Vietnam. So you see that at that time, 1979, so this is five years after the end of the Vietnam War, four years really before the final end of the fall of the Saigon regime and everything like that. So just a few years after that, what a disaster. You know, three million dead, absolutely nothing accomplished except that now Pol Pot is, you know, rampaging across Cambodia and all of this. You know, we knocked the domino over in the name of preventing the dominoes from falling. 
we were the ones who brought communism to Cambodia and made everything that much worse and lost South Vietnam anyway after all that effort and all this. Boy, we wish we hadn't done that. A decade-long, extremely costy, costly and extremely divisive, domestically speaking, uh, effort for no gain. And it was the worst thing that the American establishment could have done, never mind to the Vietnamese and Laotians and Cambodians, but to the people of the United States. And what the hell were they thinking doing this, forcing the American people to do this? And so they thought um, because of the Vietnam syndrome, which is what they derisively called the American people's unwillingness to do that again, at least for a while, they said, well, listen, we still have the problem of the USSR. If we can't contain them, let's bait them into overexpansion. Let's do to them. In other words, if we can't contain because the American people's spirit aren't for another Korea, another Vietnam at this point, roll them back, their influence, this kind of thing, then, well, let's go ahead and and play the suckers game on them. Rope a dope, basically. Right. We'll go ahead and give them their own Vietnam. That was the word they used. Right. Vietnam as shorthand for a giant no win, expensive quagmire that, you know, breaks the bank and divides your society back home and all of these things. And so we'll do that to them. And then as Brzezinski boasts in this interview uh, with the French magazine that, yes, it worked. And you want to complain about the rise of Islamist extremism in Afghanistan. Well, what's more important, the fall of the USSR and the liberation of Eastern Europe or some stirred up Muslims in Afghanistan? Who cares about that? We're talking about the greatest victory in the world, which, by the way, you were too young at the time, but I wasn't. I saw this happen when the Soviet Union ceased to exist and not just all of Eastern Europe, but also all of the five major stands there. Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, Kazakhstan. And uh, who am I missing there? They were all set free, too. And the Soviet Union. I mean, imagine a, a literal like hammer and sickle Marxist communist you know, a uh, 17 nation empire ceases to exist almost entirely without violence over the course of two years. It was the most fantastic victory that had ever been won. Can you imagine? We won World War III without having a war. It was unbelievable. And so to Brzezinski, he was saying that, yeah, well, screw the Afghans. You know, if they're saddled with the Taliban now, that's too bad, but oh well. And in fact, a year later, he put out a book where he says we must support the China-Pakistan-Taliban axis in Afghanistan. I support President Clinton's current policy, which is to support Saudi and Pakistan's effort to back the Taliban and their rise to power there. Now, the Clinton government was doing it because they wanted a consolidated Taliban regime that could provide security for their oil pipeline they wanted to build from Turkmenistan. That's why I left off the list. Sorry, uh, Turkmen. Um, but, uh, or no, yeah, yeah, it was Turkmenistan. Um, and, um, but Brzezinski was thinking in broader strategy. And he said, what's important here is limiting the influence of Iran, Russia, and India. And so to do that, we support the China, Pakistan, Taliban axis there. And then, of course, this is the joke, right? Is that ever since 2001, We've been fighting for that exact opposite agenda there, fighting not just against the Taliban, but for Iran, Russia, and India's friends in the Tajiks, Hazaras, and Uzbeks. I said that out of order. The Hazaras are 
close to Iran and the Tajiks are close to the Russians and the Indians, I guess, are both are close to the Uzbeks and the Tajiks and whatever different warlords. But essentially, I look at General Dostum right now. The USA has been backing the the communist puppets of the Soviet Union. They they claim that the Russians are trying to kill Americans in Afghanistan and all this stuff right now. They haven't switched sides in the war. We have. America's the ones who have been backing the same people that the Russians have backed all along, all this time. And the only reason they're backing the Taliban at all now is just to marginalize ISIS because the Taliban, their biggest competitors for power is not the Kabul government, but it's the rise of this new Islamic state movement there. That was, of course, the result of the American war in Pakistan. Um, and so the Russians are hedging their bets there, backing the local Mujahideen against the more internationalist troublemaking types, which is the same bet that America made in Iraq and that Obama and Trump have both made in Afghanistan as well. That, oh, well, we'll go ahead and accept the Taliban as long as they keep ISIS and al-Qaeda out. That's Putin's exact same policy there. But anyway, so um, back to, you know, Brzezinski at that time. He was essentially, I think, in answer to the question, she didn't frame the question so narrowly, the interviewer, but he answered more narrowly, stirred up Muslims, but he's really talking about the Taliban in Afghanistan. He wasn't really addressing the international terrorist threat there. And, you know, that was the same thing about kind of all of these people was, you know, really missing the forest for the trees there. And as I document in the book, the Clinton government, and they knew good and well what was going on. I mean, Richard Holbrook talked about this, that if it hadn't been for sort of the Arab Afghan veterans the Mujahideen from the Afghan war, then they would have lost in Bosnia. That this, these were the guys that the, the Clinton government backed in the war in Bosnia. Well, of course, that's where Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the ringleader of the 9-11 attack, earned his credibility as a fighter there. It wasn't in the Afghan war against the Soviets. He came later. He earned his stripes in Bosnia, where our government still thought that they could make these guys useful. Um, and they backed them. I think we talked about this before. They, they backed them in Chechnya. And they backed them also in Kosovo, where the Kosovo Liberation Army was riddled with these Arab Afghan, you know, bin Ladenite type veterans of the Afghan war at that time. And that actually helped. Again, the Clinton government kind of lulled them into a false sense of security that like, hey, these are our guys when you don't have them on that tide of a leash, you know, and just because, you know, like in that Batman movie, like, hey, I paid you a lot of money. What? And you think that gives you power over me? You know, thanks a lot for the money, but I still get to do what I want with it. And so and and I think we talked about this before, but I like saying it. So bear with me. After September 11th, Bill Clinton and Democratic Senator Lantos and Democratic Representative Brad Sherman, all three of those men said something very close to the effect of, I can't believe that these terrorists would attack us after all that we've done for them lately. And we sided with the Muslims the way we did in Bosnia and in Kosovo like this and for them to come and stab us in the back. But of course, all the things that we've been doing to provoke them into doing so on the other side, bribing them on one hand, but provoking them, slapping them in the face and calling them N-words with the other is, you know, enough to get somebody to haul off and knock your block off, which is what happened 19 years ago. Sure. We have uh, Julian Assange talking to John Pilger, and he says, I think this email is the most significant email in the whole Podesta uh, collection. This is an email from Hillary to John Podesta, September 27th, 2014. She says, 
Note, sources include Western intelligence, U.S. intelligence, and sources in the region. With all of its strategic aspects, the advance of ISIL through Iraq gives the U.S. government an opportunity to change the way it deals with the chaotic security situation in North Africa and in the Middle East. We should return to plans to provide the free Syrian army, she mentions, says we need to step up operations against the Syrian regime, specifying Assad. She then says... With this military-paramilitary operation is moving forward, we need to use our diplomatic and more traditional intelligence assets to bring pressure on the governments of Qatar and Saudi, and Saudi Arabia, which are providing clandestine financial and logistic support to ISIL and other radical Sunni groups in the region. So, is this her saying that ISIS is essentially a creation of Qatar and Saudi Arabia? I'm not exactly sure the context. What's the date on that? It is September 27th, 2014. Okay, but um, she was gone by January 2013, so that's not Hillary Clinton. Oh, uh, I might have... Or if uh, it is, it's not a State Department document, because she was only in the first term. She was gone by Obama's second term. So, uh, yes, but uh, th this is... Uh, and they what weren't I even called from... ISIS... They didn't even, um, you know, really separate from Javad al-Nusra until the spring of 2013. Uh, so she actually says ISIL, I-S-I-L. Um, uh, I will uh, correct Yeah, but the that date. was, yeah, same In difference, but they were still, could you email that to me? And let me look at that. Of course, yeah. It's supposed to be, it, it's purported to be one of her State Department emails or one of the DNC, or well, one of the Podesta this, emails, This you is in the Podesta emails, yeah. So I'd have to look at that, but I mean, at oh. least according to the date, that would have been when she was out of power and okay. she's maybe talking about how we would frame this in the campaign, I guess, something like that. Which, okay. Uh, the uh, only reason I mentioned it is Assange said it was the most important out of the collection. So I figured it'd be worth Okay. Mentioning. Well, I mean, I can come up with some comments um, <laughs> other than just, just setting us straight as far as the chronology there. It doesn't sound like she was the secretary of state at the time of that particular email, but regardless, what she's doing there is, I mean, it's kind of a complicated mess, you know, jumping into the middle of the Syria thing. But, you know, the the idea when she was the secretary of state, the way that she framed it, and I guess she talked herself into seeing it this way. They really, you know, a lot of them framed it this way, was that if Obama would just really double and triple down support for the less jihadist rebels, the so-called moderates, that they would be able to attract the support of all the rest of the regular rank and file and would be able to moder uh, to marginalize the influence of the real uh, more radicals from Jabhat al-Nusra and, and uh, Arar al-Sham and other groups like that. But the reality was that was always crazy. And Obama himself said that he, he told this to Tom Friedman of the New York Times that there was this fantasy Right. It's like this daydream. He called it a fantasy that you could build up a moderate group of rebels that, as he put it, because this is how they kept putting it, that it would be doctors and lawyers and pharmacists and farmers and like moderate middle class, upper middle class property owning suit, you know, semi professionals and these kinds of people, professionals that they would somehow lead this militia that would on one hand be able to defeat 
Jabhat al-Nusra, the guys sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri. They're just Syrian al-Qaeda. They're the Syrian veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq, right? Um, and what was then by then known as the Islamic State, I'll get back to the break-off thing there in a second, but you know the Islamic State, which is just Jabhat al-Nusra, only the Iraqi-dominated faction rather than the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda, and at that point no longer loyal to al-Qaeda, but same difference, right? Um, and take on Assad and his allies on the other side, the, uh, you know, the Syrian Arab army, of course, and Hezbollah and Iran, and then later Russia too. And you're telling me this CIA backed army of moderates that we can't find that don't really exist are supposed to do all these magical things and take on all comers from all directions, all at the same time, all this thing. It's just crap. But they had this whole narrative that, and Obama's just not doing enough. And if only he had committed to backing the moderates more, then that would have helped to marginalize um, the radicals and that kind of thing. When in fact, he was backing the moderates more, more than they were admitting. And all of that support was going to the bad guys. Because, you know, even David Sanger in the New York Times, you know, and the New York Times agrees with me, it's them confessing and admitting it. Um, David Sanger confesses and admits in the fall of 2012, that all these weapons are going to the jihadists. Because look, the moderates, by definition, aren't the first volunteers for the front line to go fight in a, you know, citizen uprising. Um, you know, they may have foreign backing, but they're not regular military battalions. They're volunteers from whichever neighborhoods and then, you know, eventually whichever countries people coming. But you don't have moderates lining up to get shot. The moderates are sitting on their fat ass at a hotel in Qatar talking about how much they're getting paid while the guys who are doing the fighting are the guys who don't mind dying. And the guys who don't mind dying in this case, that's Al-Qaeda in Iraq. That's who they are, this, the Syrian veterans of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Islamic State. So now, what month of, of 2014 is this again? You say spring, April? It says 2014 is the year. 09 is the month. And oh, September, okay. And 27 is the date. So, I mean, okay. I got this right off WikiLeaks. No, no, I, I got you. I got you. So this is, so now what happens is ISIS breaks away from Al-Qaeda's authority and sort of leadership by the Syrian-dominated faction of the group and it, the Iraqi-dominated faction of the group go back to calling themselves the Islamic State of Iraq. And then they add, and the Levant, that's ISIL or and Syria, if you want. It's a, you know... Western translation of the way they call it in Arabic. The acronym is pronounced dash D A E S H kind of thing. Um, anyway, um, that was essentially the bin Ladenites and it was a fight over who controls the oil in Eastern Syria between the Syrian faction and the Iraqi faction. But it was also a fight over doctrine over whether they were going to just keep fighting till America was exhausted in the far enemy doctrine and try to create their caliphate someday which was what Al-Qaeda wanted, or whether they were going to go ahead and create their caliphate now. And so that was in 2013. A year later was when they rolled into Western Iraq and uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi went up on the balcony like Mussolini at that mosque in Mosul and declared that he was the Caliph Ibrahim and this is now the divinely um, inspired caliphate, sultanate, and all this kind of thing. And so at that time, that was in June. And then um, Obama actually, you know, let Baghdad feel the pressure 
and 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 finally um, intervened only in uh, August when Irbil started feeling the pressure from ISIS up in uh, northern Iraqi Kurdistan. He went ahead and launched Iraq War Three starting then in August of 2014. So this is Hillary a month later, a month into Iraq War Three against ISIS, which again was a consequence of American support for these so-called moderates in Syria the whole time and building them up to be so powerful that then what they do, they didn't put all their pressure on Assad. They went back east into Western Iraq and took it over. Oops. And so that was obviously a giant black eye for the US. So they had to launch Iraq War Three at that point. So now in this email, I guess what Hillary is saying is that we need to get now's an opportunity because ice because the result of ISIS taking over Iraq is such an obvious, ugly black guy, these maniacs. And they really were, as Patrick Coburn said, they were like the Iraqi Khmer Rouge. I mean, they were just going around murdering people and and acting completely crazy. And um, so this looks so bad. It sounds like what she's saying there is. So we need to ask all of our allies who've been backing ISIS all this time to please stop backing ISIS now, because look at how bad this is. So it sounds like that's why Assange is saying it's important there is because he's saying, look at what an admission this is by her, that she's essentially acknowledging how bad the problem is that our allies, especially the Turks, were spending, you know, focusing so much of their support on backing the very worst group here, a group that now has come to completely humiliate the United States by knocking over and taking Western Iraq in a week. Uh, with, you know, Saudi bought pickup trucks. Oh, sorry. American donated pickup trucks. Now, was there any Al Qaeda in Iraq before Iraq War II starting in 2003? No. And so that's the whole thing, right? This uprising in Syria that started in 2011, this was a, a big part of that was the result of all the Syrian veterans of Iraq War II who had fought with Al Qaeda in Iraq War II coming home to Syria and having their own revolution to fight. But before Iraq War II, there was no Al-Qaeda in Iraq at all. And there are plenty of people who said, well, look, if you go in an unprovoked attack against an um, uh, Arab nation like this, you're sure to cause more terrorism and radicalization. And I don't know that there were very many who said, like, here's exactly how the dominoes are going to fall. You're going to have to empower the supermajority Shia, and that's going to provoke the Sunnis to react in a way that then the bin Ladenites are going to exploit and whatever. Like, I don't know if anybody could have really – very few people, I think, maybe some, could have told you exactly how this is going to play out in Iraq. But many people, including you know, a bunch of nobodies like myself back then – um, said that this is sure to drive overall sentiment against the United States and in favor of people. It's an unprovoked war. They can call it a humanitarian mission all they want, but it's not one. You know, this is going to be a, a horrible, violent thing. And, and uh, you know, nobody knew exactly how the occupation was going to play out and all that. But the idea that it was going to make terrorism worse was pretty obvious before it. But now, so, now that was what happened, right? I just said it too fast, but that was what happened in the war America took the side of the Shiite supermajority, fought five years for them, and kicked all the Sunnis out of Baghdad, almost all the Sunni Arabs out of Baghdad uh, for them, and created this new Shiite regime that's, um, of course, much closer to Iran than it is to the United States. And in reaction, they pushed the Sunni Arab population into an extremely violent insurgency in an attempt to hold on to the power that they had. 
a large part of this because all the oil is because all the oil is in Shiite territory up near Kirkuk and down near Basra. And by losing control of the central government in Baghdad, that meant they were losing control of the ability to siphon off all that money for themselves. So now they essentially, you know, are frozen out. The supermajority has the power and all the money and they're not getting anything. They, they had everything to lose. And so they ended up fighting this, you know, violent insurgency and losing civil war for five years with America on the Shiite side of that. And then, um, you know, the bin Ladenites essentially swooped in and exploited that. And, you know, the, the most radical edge, the most suicide bombingist and head choppingist uh, radical edge of the Sunni based insurgency in Iraq was led by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was not Al Qaeda and who was not friends with Saddam Hussein, even though Colin Powell invoked his presence in Iraq as a tie between Saddam and Osama. In fact, he was tied to neither. He told Osama, no, I don't want to join Al Qaeda. I want to kill the king of Jordan. And uh, Saddam Hussein had a, a warrant out for his arrest or like all points bulletin to be on the lookout for this guy. But he was safe up in American protected anonymous Kurdistan before the war. He was in Iraq. Yeah, sure. Technically speaking, but he was far outside of Saddam Hussein's protection. And they just spread all these lies that Saddam was protecting him up there when it couldn't have been true. And in fact, and this is so well reported for just one small part of the story. I don't know how much of this is left online somewhere, but it started with Jim Miklaschewski. Well, it may not have started with him, but Jim Miklaschewski at NBC News covered it. And then a lot of other really great reporting was done about how the Bush government refused to let American forces in Kurdistan and, you know, based in America and and spies and special operations guys who were already preparing the battlefield on the ground in Iraq. They were all banned from killing Zarqawi before the war. And they had every opportunity. And the generals asked Bush personally, let us kill this guy. He's going to be a real problem. But Bush needed his talking point that this guy's Zarqawi is a connection between Saddam and Osama and proof of why we have to go to war. So they let him live. And then he became a, a and they gave him way too much credit. Right. They they had this whole propaganda campaign that the only people in Iraq who are resisting us are evil terrorists loyal to Zarqawi. Well, that wasn't true at all. Right. It was a homegrown Sunni based insurgency fighting a losing sectarian war. And he was glomming on to that and, you know, playing his part in that. But then, you know, it, it turned out to be a disaster. Right. And there were tens of thousands of new bin Ladenite types created in that chaos and then who eventually were roused, you know, routed and defeated, not by the Americans, but by other Sunni Arab tribal leaders and former Baathists who were sick of their nonsense. Because, you know, a lot of the bin Ladenites in Iraq War II had come from around the region. They'd come from Saudi and Libya and Syria and in Egypt. And so they were wearing out their welcome. And so the local Iraqis ended up, the local Sunnis who'd been their allies ended up turning on them. And especially when Petraeus says, look, I'll stop hunting you guys down. If only you'll hunt them down. They said, fine, we'll take that deal. Take your cash. And so they were very marginalized. But then here comes Barack Obama. And Barack Obama comes in starting in 2011 and he takes their side in Syria and first in Libya and then in Syria. I've told you before, but it's worth a mention. The policy really shifted while Bush was still in power. They didn't mean to put Iran's guys in there. They're just stupid because they listen to Paul Wolfowitz and Paul Wolfowitz is stupid. So they ended up making a giant strategic error and putting Iran's best friends in power there. And they knew that and they realized that and fessed up to it, at least internally, by 2006 and went and apologized to the Saudi king 
and launched what Seymour Hersh called the redirection. Uh, in fact, no, he didn't call it that. They called it that, and Hersh just reported that. The article is called The Redirection, and it was actually Elliot Abrams who's you know famous from Iran-Contra, famous from lying us into Iraq War II, uh, famous for uh, helping to lead Trump's horrible Venezuela policy recently. Uh, this you know neoconservative Mandarin type, and um, he helped lead the effort. And basically, it was we got to admit that we wish we hadn't empowered the Shia as much as we have here, and now it's time to tilt back toward the Sunnis, the Saudi king, and that whole GCC axis of power. And so Bush had started backing, um, you know, at least pseudo jihadists in Lebanon, in Syria, and in Iran, uh, Fatah al Islam in in Lebanon. Um, Muslim Brotherhood groups in Syria and a group called Jandala, which Israel also backed in Iran that were head chopping, uh, you know, suicide bombing crazies, you know, Bin Ladenite types. And um, so Obama, when he comes in, it's not that he's like a secret Kenyan uh, Muslim terrorist guy. It's that he's just George W. Bush. He's carrying out the same policy turn that Bush had already essentially realized his mistake and was attempting to correct by making worse ones. Right. And so. Um, you know, people go and look up um, Barack Obama's conversation with Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic magazine in July. Uh, pardon me. It's in the spring, maybe April or May of 2012. Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic says, hey, Barack Obama, don't you think if we got rid of Assad in Damascus that that would help to bring Iran down a peg since Assad is allies with Iran? And Obama tells Goldberg, absolutely. And that's what we're doing. That's why we're doing it. And then they, they even make a joke, you know, I'll tell you, but I have to kill you kind of joke that he says, well, what are we doing to help make sure that this comes about? And Obama says, well, I could tell you, Jeffrey, but your security clearance isn't high enough. In other words, confirming that, yes, he has launched, you know, authorized these covert actions to overthrow Assad. Why? To bring Iran down a peg. Why? Because Bush Jr. put him up two pegs. So, well, maybe we can have a consolation prize by doing this. But meanwhile, everybody who isn't in on that agenda, but who knows about this stuff is saying, you've got to be crazy, right? Patrick Coburn comes on the show and says, well, I just got back from Baghdad. And they said to me, they said, Patrick, what in the hell is going on? You realize that, you know, the Americans by backing the Sunni insurgency in Syria, the very same Sunni insurgency we just put down by backing them there, you're re-energizing the insurgency here, and you're putting all the Western Iraq at, at risk. I mean, everybody saw it coming in super slow motion. In fact, right at the time, I told you, it was a year before Western Iraq fell was when they declared themselves the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, right? And, you know, making clear their ambition. And at this time, they actually had the power to seal off eastern Syria, except for the very north of it in Kurdistan. But they essentially seized all of eastern Syria for themselves, which at that time was out of reach of Assad because America's running interference, backing all the other groups against him at that time. And so they consolidated that state. And Patrick Coburn came on the show then and said, well, geez, I went to Mosul and the Iraqi army's AWOL, man. They're gone. Where are they? Well, where were they? When they're in Mosul, they're like out on Fort Apache, out in enemy territory, right? Like West Berlin, completely surrounded by East Germany or something like that. They are essentially in a foreign country, if not enemy territory. They are in Western Iraqi Sunni stand 
which is they are not where they are not from. And so and they don't feel supported by the Iraqi army supply lines behind them. And so they say nuts to this and they withdraw back behind Shiite lines, leaving Mosul wide open. So here's this conversation just taking place on my little old podcast in July of 2013 that, well, geez, Patrick Coburn, the Iraqi dominated faction of Al Qaeda in Syria is announcing that they want to create an Islamic state for Syria and Iraq. And you're telling me the Iraqi army is AWOL from Western Iraq. I think I see a problem here. And you can go back and check the archives of my show, for, especially for the year 2013 leading to the rise, leading to the invasion of Mosul. It's nothing but my panic over it. In fact, I even had Michael Scheuer on the show. And he goes, well, I think Nigeria is the big thing. And I'm like, no, dude, it's the space between Iraq and Syria right now. We got you might there might as well be an atom bomb is about to go off over there in terms of the next shoe to drop. And if you listen to my show in the spring, especially of 2014 and leading right up to June and the fall and the invasion, I'm interviewing every single Al Qaeda expert that I can to say, look at what our policy is doing and what this leads to. And Western Iraq is wide open. And Patrick Coburn says it's wide open and this is the biggest danger. And it, so that's not for me bragging. That's establishing that anybody who read antiwar.com and read Patrick Coburn knew and cared about this stuff could have told you what's going on here. And by the way, I interviewed a pretty high level CIA officer on the show, uh, a counterterrorism uh, officer and who was involved in many of these policies and so forth. And I mentioned her something that Patrick Coburn had written. And she said, who? And I was saying, yeah, have you ever read that? No. Who? What? And I'm like, look, lady, like, I understand you have classified access or whatever, but you guys don't read Patrick Coburn? And she's like, no, I mean, I guess I've heard of him. Like, oh, Keith, Jesus Christ, dude. You can't know what the fuck is going on over there if you're not reading Patrick Coburn, man. You can't. You can't. And these people, she, oh, I think I've heard of him before. Oh, my God. He's the most important white man in the Middle Eastern countries. The most important, I should say, Western reporter in these Middle Eastern countries to tell you and me and the CIA even if they would bother to read what in the hell is going on in the world, you know, and then this is what you get. It's it's a total catastrophe. And back to Iraq, as crazy as that was invading Iraq for no good reason in Iraq War Two. In 2003, imagine Keith, if Saddam had been in the middle already of putting down a bin Ladenite, Zarqawiite insurgency, he's sitting there with his clean shaven chin and his beret and his olive green and his secular state. And he's putting down a bin Laden suicide bombing campaign. And then imagine that George Bush picked that moment not just when people were warning that this could lead to a rise of terrorism, but imagine if it was a situation where everyone could see that, my God, you get rid of Saddam now, yeah, kiss this whole country goodbye. It's going to go completely into chaos when he's in the middle of putting down bin Ladenites. Well, that's what Obama did in Syria. That's what Obama did in Syria. Obama comes in, in when 
Assad is putting down a bin Ladenite insurgency, and he doesn't just take the side of some other Shiites against him or something like that. He takes the side of the bin Ladenites against him. Takes the side of the actual bin Ladenites. And, you know, everyone can hear the famous uh, audio of John Kerry and one of his aides meeting with some Syrian rebel dissenter types in uh, meeting in Britain. And they're saying, we want more money and more guns. And Kerry says, listen, the country's lousy with guns, okay? This is 2015 or maybe even 16. And he's saying it, it would have been late 2015. Um, but maybe it's 2016. And he says, he goes, listen, the country's lousy with guns. We gave you guys all these weapons and all this money, and our allies did too, but it wasn't enough. It didn't work. And he says, check me, Keith. He says, we saw the rise of ISIS. We thought we could manage that that would put pressure on Assad to step down. But that didn't work. And instead, Assad just turned to Iran and to Russia for help. And now, essentially, he says in so many words, now the Russians have called our bluff. Now the Russians have come in with their air campaign, started bombing all the CIA's favorite terrorists down there. And I can't do nothing for you, man, at this point, because now we're talking about coming face to face with the Russians. And we're not going to do that just to protect some Al Qaeda guys on the ground there. But the level of that admission is just absolutely world historical incredible. We saw the rise of ISIS. We thought we could manage. We thought we could use the rise of might as well have been Osama bin Laden himself taking over eastern Syria and western Iraq. And we saw that happening, but we thought we could use that to pressure Assad. But does that make any sense to you at all? Like, for example, if the British and the French teamed up to back the Confederacy in the American Civil War, do you think that would have put pressure on Abraham Lincoln to resign and give up? his fight to suppress the rebellion? Or do you think that that would have made him that much more determined to defeat the traitors who are now even allying with foreign supporters in their treason? Can you imagine a situation where Abraham Lincoln could have been pressured to step aside due to any other foreign nation's support for the Confederacy? It makes no sense at all. In what way would, what could they possibly be promising him at that point? What better world is he going, what better Damascus and better Aleppo and better Syria is he leaving behind if he leaves power at that point? One that's dominated by who instead of ISIS? You get rid of the last bulwark against the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Well, who do you get? You get the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. So you, you're going to pressure him to step aside. Why? Because he knows that Chelsea Clinton is going to come and create a wonderful new democracy there or something. Why in the world would he do that? It doesn't even make any sense in the first place. And also it's high treason. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Kerry even mentioned something that I at the time had totally backwards. He said, Russia actually had permission from the Assad regime to be there. The U.S. didn't. And right. I thought that that was the opposite. I thought that the U.S. had been invited by Syria to fight ISIS there. 
I mean, this was, gosh, however long ago this was. But I just remember that being leaked, and I go, why is that not mentioned more often, that they're uh, openly involved in another country, that they not only, that, that w- wasn't voted on, totally illegal, of course, who they're arming. Um, a- any final words on the Kerry, ISIS, uh, Iraq uh, debacle? Well, I mean, there's much more to the story, of course, and, and what happened with the Kurds and everything, but I would point out, Trump tried to get our troops out of there twice, and he was overruled by his yeah. junior, you know, uh, officers um, in 2018 and in 2019. And he still got troops in Iraq fighting, you know, what's left of Iraq War three and a half against what's left of a very low level Sunni insurgency there, which, you know, without U.S. CIA, you know, and allied support for the jihadists in Syria, there's no threat of the return of the Islamic State to Western Iraq. The Iraqi army and uh, Shiite militias can certainly take it from here now that America built up and then helped them smash the Islamic State. That's two wars that we wish we hadn't fought for the Shia. But hey, um, I mean, by we, I mean, they uh, wish they hadn't fought for these guys. But anyway. um so um, I, I wanted to uh, show you this clip. It's from a piece in uh, the Daily Beast yesterday by Spencer Ackerman. And they talk about how Trump keeps saying he wants to bring all the troops home from Afghanistan and Iraq by Election Day and how the military just essentially won't let him do it. And uh, I'm going to say the S word for a second. Is that all right? Absolutely. So he says. It's a strategy of, quote, scaring the shit out of the president, as one former senior Trump administration official characterized it. So this is them explaining themselves. This is not what they're being accused of. And they brag about it. And they say it plays on his fears of possibly getting tagged as weak like Obama. Trump world and Republican hawks have used the stratagem to great success in earlier years of this administration. The tactic helped convince Trump to embrace the Afghanistan surge in the summer of 2017 and got him to quickly back off withdrawals from Syria in both 2018 and 2019. About 900 troops will remain in Syria, a number unchanged by the Iraq drawdown. And so that's it. They simply invoke the safe haven myth. Now, no matter what catastrophe takes place, while America is intervening in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in Yemen, in Somalia, in Libya, in Syria, or Iraq, or any of these places, that's fine. But if we leave any of these places and anything bad happens then, well, that's a catastrophe. And that's all your fault for getting us out of there. And that would have never happened if we were still there. And so they truly have turned the entire principle of Republican government on its head, that we are always to be permanently at war. The presumption always is with permanent occupation and permanent expansion of American commitments overseas. And to even question that, to even raise the prospect of withdrawing troops anywhere immediately brings howls of treason and appeasement and Munich and rolling over for Hitler and all of the other things. And so, um, and it works. It's so effective. And just think about it. You know, I was uh, talking earlier today on my show with Clive Stafford Smith, and he was reminding me of one of these drone attacks in Pakistan where they, apparently they really thought that they had found Ayman al-Zawahiri and they were trying to kill him. And instead they killed, I forgot if it was 50 or 60 children. And uh, you might think that that was actually a really huge deal, you know, uh, something like that. But um uh, 
it doesn't matter because you know what? Sometimes bad things happen, but it's despite our best efforts to do the best job we can to make things right. So no level of catastrophe at our hands or our allies' hands in any of these conflicts is anything but, you know, at worst, a, a real error to be concerned about and try to learn from, tactically speaking, or something like that at worst. Um, and then it's just fine. You can stay at war forever. But if you dare pull the troops out, then look what happened. And you know what I really hate about this, man, is that um, I guess Donald Trump really isn't any smarter than George W. Bush, but at least he had a narrative during the campaign that was more sophisticated than this crap, right? It was his narrative said Obama was the founder of ISIS. So first, you got to admit, the guy knows how to fish, right? So he hooks the bait. <laughs> Obama created ISIS, but he doesn't back it up. He doesn't explain anything. And so all the lady anchors on cable TV all have heart attacks over it, right? And then he goes, oh, now that you're listening, he created ISIS by backing the jihadists in the war in Libya, backing the jihadists in the war in Syria. And then when they came in from Syria and invaded Iraq, he had pulled all the troops out. So there was no one there to stop them from taking over all of Western Iraq. Well, that was true. I mean, of course, I supported the withdrawal, but I oppose supporting al-Qaeda in Syria. So yeah. don't blame me, pal. Right. But the way he explained it, and in fact, in his speech at the National Interest Foundation, where he was introduced by Zalmay Khalilzad, and this is why they hated Mike Flynn so much, because this is Mike Flynn talking, right? And Mike Flynn's a horrible Iran hawk, but he didn't hate him so much he wanted to support al-Qaeda against him, for God's sake, you know? And so this is Mike Flynn talking, and he has Trump saying, if, if Obama hadn't, one, supported the jihad in Libya, two, supported the jihad in Syria, and three, pulled the troops out of Iraq, then ISIS would have never been, over to, been able to take over Iraq, right? But the problem is, it's Donald Trump we're talking about here. So he can never remember one and two after that when he didn't have the script in front of him. And the rest of the entire narrative of all of Washington, D.C. is that it was pulling out of Iraq that created ISIS and ISIL. And never mind that massive CIA and allied operation to support the jihadists in Syria in, yeah, for in Syria for four years leading up to that um, at that point. And so then this is exactly right. This works, right? This is the narrative that they used on him. I talk about it in my book, in the last chapter, last section of the book, that Trump, in his announcement of the escalation, says, well, geez, look what happened when Obama got out of Iraq. ISIS took over. So I guess we can never leave after all. And it worked on him then. And as they brag here, this is the same thing that they told him uh, about Syria was if you ever leave anywhere, then anything bad that happens there will all be blamed on you and you'll never recover from it. In fact, this was in the book um, uh, Fire and Fury um, by that one reporter about Trump's uh, first term there um, was that uh, about the safe haven myth. I'm almost certain that was in, in Fire and Fury that um, James Mattis tells him, oh, it might have been in the first Woodward book, Fear, actually. And James Mattis tells him, and they take him out to Afghanistan to uh, Camp David to force him to do the Afghan escalation in August, uh, August 21st, 2017, that Mattis tells him, if you don't order this escalation and you try to withdraw from Afghanistan, anything bad that happens there, I'm going to blame it on you. 
I'm going to tell everyone it's your fault and that I warned you not to withdraw. And that was enough to get him to back down. So this is really just further, you know, solidified confirmation of that as they boast to the Daily Beast. This is how we control him. We'll say you look like a pussy if you do this, boss. You don't want to do that. And then he rolls over what? Like the biggest bitch in the whole White House. You know, what a tough guy. And it's the same game that they played on on Obama, too. You know, was that we're going to call you weak if you refuse to escalate and win this war. And so what does he do? He limply rolls over. It's unbelievable. We have a similar conversation with Trump and I think it was Mattis about Somalia where when asking him, you know, whether or not we need to be there, where is this place? Do we have to be? And the general told Trump that we don't have a choice. He said, you don't have a choice. We have Trump just the other day. And this is a quote. I'm not saying the military is in love with me. The soldiers are. The top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight wars. So all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. It's like we see these moments of, oh, my God, that's, you know, this guy's going to lead us to victory. And then it's like he totally bends over to their tyranny. Uh, Here's I pass the biggest military budgets in history that make, you know, uh, adjusted for inflation that make our World War Two budgets pale in comparison. How do you like me now? I'm the greatest leader ever. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And by the way, the military industrial complex is corrupt. And by the way, why do we continue the genocide against the women and children and babies and grandmothers of Yemen? Well, because the Saudis pay us the big bucks. That's why. That's his only explanation. He doesn't even invoke Iran, which is BS anyway, you know, that Iran is there. He just goes, oh, well, the Saudis are paying so much money. You know how much money we make off each one of those F-15s, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he actually said that in a White House statement, December 2018, in response to the Khashoggi incident. So uh, I got two more questions for you, Scott. Uh, I just want to get a quick introduction into these two lesser-known events in American history. What was the U.S. doing in Granada in 1983? Okay, well, essentially it was right after the humiliation, the debacle of the slaughter of the Marines at their base in Beirut. 241 Marines, and I forgot how many Frenchmen killed by— a mall militia suicide truck bomb and Reagan at least did the right thing and pulled out of there. But, um, essentially Granada was, you know, a face saving maneuver after that, that like, look, we're going to go take over this Island in the Caribbean where I guess some leftists had come to power. I don't know how bad they really were, but they essentially pretended to believe that the American medical school students there were in danger of being, you know, killed by this regime or whatever it is. And essentially the whole thing was vastly overblown for the public relations. And, um, you know, TV gets very excited when Marines are doing things. And so it was a nice little, you know, PR thingamajig more than anything else. And, you know, Panama 1989, um, you know, Manuel Noriega was, of course, uh, had been backed by the United States. I don't know if he was originally chosen by the CIA. I think I guess he was promoted, you know, from within a group that America had backed in Panama for quite a while. Of course, America invented Panama. America stole Panama away from Colombia and renamed it Panama. But that was, you know, the whole thing was uh, put on in the first place for them to build the canal, the canal across there, um, you know, back a century ago. And, um, 
So it's always been, you know, essentially an American territory and protectorate, even though it has, you know, pseudo independent status and that kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure who it was that cut them loose or uh, previously, but I guess it was Jimmy Carter that signed the treaty to give them the canal back in 99 uh, by 99, which they, you know, control now. Um, but so uh, Noriega was essentially a right wing military dictator in the, you know, American post-war mold. Um, and he had been uh, cooperative in whatever American foreign policies in the region, particularly concerning uh, putting down the insurrection in uh, El Salvador and in trying to overthrow the government in Nicaragua after the left has seized power in Nicaragua there. Uh, he's involved in that. Um, and the, you know, the excuse for attacking him, I'm almost certain... Uh, well, I, one of the things that they used to really demonize him was his participation in the drug trade, which is, of course, laughable because we're talking about the CIA in the Reagan years, <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, they're really upset or, or just post Reagan years, I should say. But still, uh, yeah, we're, we, we can't believe that there's cocaine dealing going on in this hemisphere. I'm shocked. Uh, absolutely shocked. Um, it says the Central Intelligence Agency and George H.W. Bush. Right. Um, but then. You know, they essentially drummed up pretexts to get rid of him. And um, I think, you know, one American soldier was killed somehow or something that they made a huge deal of. And um, in fact, there's I'll tell you where you can learn a great bunch, uh, a great angle on this war is uh, James Bamford's great uh, article for Rolling Stone about John Rendon from the Rendon Group. And he was one of the major PR men who lied us into Iraq War One and Iraq War Two, um, but he got his start in Panama and coming up with covers for Time Magazine and this kind of stuff, in in drumming up the support for that invasion. And then this was really the first sort of post Cold War. The Soviet Union was still there. It's eighty nine. The wall's coming down, and and Gorbachev is already you know reducing the power and influence of the Soviet Union on the global stage uh, by major degrees. He's essentially out of the way. So this is the first step of the new world order, of the, the new era of, as George H.W. Bush called it, the new era of American dominance. As, as he said a year later in, um, in the lead up to Iraq War I, that what we say goes. That's the new international law, is we get to do whatever the hell we want. And so he didn't ask Congress. He didn't ask the U.N. Security Council. He didn't ask NATO. He didn't ask, I guess he asked his own national security cabinet. And they just launched the thing in the middle of the night. Like Truman sending troops to Korea in the middle of the night. Senate finds out the next day, you know, this kind of thing. And they just went in there and did it. And um, it really did help set the precedent that, yeah, see, we can do whatever we want. And then it was the same group of guys, Bush, Scowcroft, Baker, Cheney and Powell, who did Iraq War One. you know, a year later. And that, you know, look at what we can accomplish when we work together, guys. We can kill a bunch of people and get, get our way. And so, you know, it was really kind of a prelude to all of that. Yeah, I mean, we certainly, uh, when we look at each one of these individual examples, it throws a total wrench into the ultimate justification for a government and a military. They're there to stop enemies, but meanwhile, they actually create enemies in the case of Iraq and uh, the Middle East. And uh, they seldom defend us because even after something like 9-11 happens, George Bush's approval ratings go up to 90% instead right. of people looking at the state as 
well, this is a result of state aggression in the first place. So uh, this uh, really throws a wrench in that uh, status narrative. I definitely recommend everyone check out Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. As I say, Chapter 1 is a great uh, expose on uh, the reality of blowback and uh, the importance of it. Scott Horton, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Keith. Happy to do it.